so composing uh, attention here and now, this sense of bringing the wandering, scattered uh, tendencies of the mind to this one point. And that's just through remembering here and now. And then being aware of the, if you, if you can use sound of silence, that gives you this vast perspective. But if you, you don't notice that or haven't discovered it yet, then the breath and the body. So these are, this is just, you know, this is how I've done it. I'm not trying to give you a technique or say you should do it my way, but it's just sharing what I've learned. And we all have to find our own upayas or skillful means, dealing with our particular idiosyncrasies or character tendencies. So it's not about formulas that, you know, that you have to follow and my way is the only way. But the reflective ability and that the, to remember, this ability to remember Buddha Dhamma Sangha, here and now. Because in the, you know, the, the completely unawakened human individual, even though it's always here and now, they, they're not aware of that. They don't value it. And life is lived here f for the future. How many contented human beings do you know? Content with the here and now. Or, you know, there's always a future. Or fear of death. When you get older, then the future looms up in the kind of grotesque masks of death. Skeletons in the Grim Reaper. Images like that. <laughs> Old age. And... So then the, then the past, sometimes old people, we, we like to remember the good old days when I was young. So the, this is why the Akalika Dhamma is uh, in, in reflecting on what time really is as reality rather than as just operating from the perceptions of time as reality. And people don't question time, they believe in it. You know, time is, is the reality of the ignorant world. The body is definitely oneself in terms of the ignorant world. The unawakened, unenlightened society that we're living in is the realities of me uh, as a, this body. Me is the age of this body. Me is the gender of this body. Me as some kind of identity, some ethnic or national identity. My reality of what political party I belong to or whatever. They, these are how we create this sense of separateness and self. With the religion we belong to. With our sexual preferences. All these things that create a sense of a separate self, that a separate self always has its opposite. Uh, so there's always this, this dualism and the fear that arises because it's, it, 
when there's two, then there's the strife, there's war. When two is our reality, then there's always heaven against hell. There's some one extreme contending against another. And that's why fear is a kind of primal emotion, isn't it? It's a the animal realm is about fear. If you notice the uh, the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest, it's fear, protect you know, survival and fear are the motivating forces. Procreation of the species, survival and fear. Uh, and so this is, we have the same instinctual primal instincts as the animal. And that's because we're identified with the, with the bodies we have. And that this is uh, unquestioned identity, attachment to, to oneself as a personality or as the physical body or one's clan or tribe or religion and that we, we, we create ourselves belonging to a certain group that we uh, have to defend, perpetuate. And that very division, you know, if there's Catholics, there's Protestants. There's always uh, Mahayana, Hinayana, Shiites and Sunni and Orthodox and liberal and on and on like this. So the, this language is is a skillful means for thinking, but it's not it's not ultimately true. The thinking process can be used with wisdom, or just can be a conditioned reaction to things. And so, so much of our suffering is created through our thinking, the way we think how I see myself as a person and, and um, fear that generates from this identity. And that's why on this, uh, during this winter's retreat, really investigate, the, you know, observe the thinking. Don't think about thinking or, you know, try to figure out thinking because one, if you think about thinking, you're still, you know, you're caught in the trap. You always end up with wichikicha or doubt, the third fetter. So this is learning to observe thinking. The knower of the thinking is not the thinker, it's the knower. When you're attached to thinking, then you become the thinker. And of course, Rodin's sculpture of the thinker sitting at the gates of hell, isn't it? Anguish, despair. Well, look at Buddha Rupas in contrast to that. It's the, the Buddha Rupa here doesn't think. And it is not about the Buddha in anguish about the state of the world or fear of death. It's, it's attentive consciousness with attention. So the Buddha images, the iconic forms that have developed in Buddhism, or about there's an icon, religious icon of a human individual awake, fully present here and now, not identifying with anything, not being, not having to defend or conquer or do anything other than 
rest in the pure presence of consciousness, knowing an enlightened individual, human individual. So this is, uh, this is, uh, you know, what we begin to appreciate, this, this human birth has this opportunity and occasion that we all have to break through delusion, free ourselves from ignorance. Or we can just go along with the delusions and and most most humanity doesn't have have an opportunity to question their reality the the social identities and national identities and that are tribal identities uh, are their reality that's the their real world but those of us who have this opportunity have this you know to have come across the teachings of the Buddha, and the occasion to practice them. So this is, uh, is it good luck, or barami, or whatever it is. <laughs> but I'm certainly grateful, because this is to, you know, to see for yourself. And so the, the onus is upon you, you know, how willing you are to challenge and look and examine and get to the root of uh, suffering. So uh, these teachings, Four Noble Truths, this is a very, that's what it's all about. It's for use. It's the key to the prison cell door. And uh, it's, uh, you know, how you use it's up to you, whether you want to use it to open the door or to put on a shrine or to throw away and my cultivation over the years this sound of silence you know it's uh, it challenged me because it's not you know it's not part of Theravada Buddha practice that I've ever found it's not mentioned so then because it's not mentioned then one tends to dismiss it like I remember uh, last time in uh, Spirit Rock in California, we had a, a week with the Vipassana teachers there. And I asked the Vipassana teachers if they noticed sound of silence. They all did. I said, well, how, what, what is it? What do you do? And they say, we've just been told to notice. Uh, you know, they, they make, it's a Burmese method that they use, the Mahasi Thayadaw method, so that they just you know, note it. Uh, but it's not, it's not reflected upon. It's, it's kind of, it, it, uh, they seem to have ignored it or not known what it is, so it's dismissed. It's not, you know, they didn't know how to use it or how to, or what it is. Is it tinnitus or is it, you know, we want to figure out, is it a vibration? Is it the blood vessels in the ears? That, uh, is it the vibrations of the nerves? Of the nerves? Uh, I hear all kinds of people desperately trying to figure it out. But when we do that, then, you know, we're, we're, we, we might notice it, but then we create it into something. We want to, it, if it's not mentioned in the Pali scriptures, then it must not, 
you know, not must, must not be worth anything. And because we have such faith in the in the scriptural teaching that we don't trust our own, you know, observability to observe the what we're experiencing, what's happening, unless we can put it into a, a scriptural context. So you know we. With religions, oftentimes in conventional form, we're always trying to bend life to fit the, the context, like the Procrustean bed. Now there's this, this Greek myth about Procrustes who, who had this bed, and uh, only one size of bed, so that anyone who slept on it, if they were too short, he had to stretch them. And if they were too big for the bed, he had to cut bits off that hung over the edges. <laughs> so this is <laughs> it's called Procrustean bed. And that's somewhat how we oftentimes use religion. So instead of bed being a place of rest, it's a place of torture. Because very few might be able to actually be the exact precise size of the bed. So notice that that's why uh, emphasizing the convention, conventions are, you know, they're not nothing in themselves. They're anicca, dukkanata, like everything else. They're not meant to be, uh, you know, we're not supposed to stretch ourselves to fit them or to cut bits off because uh, they don't fit in to the size of the convention. And this is like the awakened uh, consciousness, you know, it's vast. It has no boundary. That's why to recognize it, it's not limited to convention. So when we talk about sati sampachanya, satipanya, this is this is universal. This is unlimited. This is not about Buddhism per se. There's no name. It doesn't belong to any any religious group or any conventional form. And yet we do tend to relate consciousness to the Procrustean bed. We're always because we, you know, we we our faith is in the convention, and we lack that that trust in our own ability to investigate and see and understand. Uh, this is why many of us have, why Buddhism does offer this opportunity now, because, you know, in terms of my experience, my cultural background, it was always you, you had to f make yourself fit into the convention. You had to, you know, what the, con the limits of the convention were, the limits you had to accept. And that you couldn't doubt that. You, doubt would, would place you in a, you know where you were you 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 were challenging the limits of the conventional form and then with this particular approach of the buddha the four noble truths this is this is an encouragement to wake up rather than a demand for uh conformity so in the and in the ironic side of it is that Monasticism is the ultimate in conformity, isn't it? So, it, but it's conforming 
merely on the conventional side, you know, in terms of moral uh, moral agreements and uh, etiquette agreements on behavior and speech. But in terms of um, investigation, it's not, there's no boundary. In that you're, you, this is because we're not making a, a problem around the conventional forms. We're not endlessly having to to struggle and negotiate and 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 uh, endlessly debate on the conventional level. Uh, the value of the conformity is it's an agreed structure, so that our lives can be dedicated to investigation of dhamma rather than demanding. Uh, you know, I want my way, or I don't agree, and I have to have this, and and all the other ways that we would operate. We spend so much of our lives uh, ch- challenging and negotiating and quarreling about who's right and who's wrong. So the structure is a, is a conforming one, but the but the dhamma has is not about conformity. It's about awakened attention to see things as they really are. So consciousness then is, is not a, a um, it doesn't, it's not, it's not about being a human being or being a monk or a nun or about being a Buddhist. Consciousness is, then is, is a oneness, isn't it? It's one. When we begin to uh, even think about oneness, of course, it, it, uh, to reflect on oneness, the oneness of this moment, what, what is that? What is the reality? Universe, unity, one. It's never, I can never create oneness as on a personal as something, you know, that I have or that I'm experiencing as a person. It's when I let go of the conditions, the reality of oneness is recognized, it's real. It's, it's kind of truism, it's unitive, it's universal. So that includes everything, doesn't it? It's, it's, uh, has no, it, it's not, it doesn't divide into heaven and hell, good and bad. So it includes every every variation, every permutation of conditioned phenomena. It includes pollution and plastic and all the things that we tend to despise. Uh, it includes uh, atrocities and pedophiles and and serial killers and all the hideous, nasty, ugly, brutal, disgusting conditions, as well as the angelic chorus, the great human creators like Mozart, Beethoven, includes uh, Jesus and Mohammed and Buddha, saints and and devils and so forth. So 
So these are conditions, aren't they? These are aspects. These are, uh, you know, the condition phenomena can goes from one extreme to the other, and all shades of gray, you know, in between the extremities. So when we're and then thinking itself is can only create extremity. Well, that's why attachment to thought is, uh, you know, it's uh, thinking, you talk about hierarchy and equality. But these are, you know, thinking itself is hierarchical, isn't it? It's, you can, you know, if you have, we talk about the best, the highest. And then, then this is a, this is a structure of the best and then the opposite, of course, is the worst. So the conditioned realm is, is, is hierarchical. It's a structure. It begins and ends, birth and death. That's the way it is. The conditioned phenomena is anicca, dukkha, anatta. And it's, sometimes it's what we like, sometimes it's what we don't like. It's, and it changes and moves according to what we call law of karma. It's beyond me to to make something into what, you know, to, to fit what I like or what I prefer, my personal preferences. So then the awareness of conditioned phenomena. And so this is what the Buddha was. This is, this is it. This is the gate to the deathless. Satisambhajanya, here and now. Awakened consciousness, seeing conditioned phenomena, receiving it. It's not about resisting it or annihilating it, but understanding it, knowing it. Dukkha is to be understood, not to be annihilated. We're not trying to get rid of it. When you begin to recognize consciousness then everything belongs in it so it's not it's not a matter of, of uh, you know me trying to sort it all out and or blaming others because there's things I don't approve of and don't like so that's why in harmlessness when you take the precepts to refrain from harming because you know I don't like mosquitoes and Things, um, the insects that that can make me physically very uncomfortable or give diseases. I don't like, don't want them. But they belong, you know. They're not. It's, it's not about me. What I approve of belongs, and the rest doesn't. Then that's sakya ditti. So, in terms of bana dibata and the, the monastic sense of non-violent, non non-intention to destroy creatures. This is, this is to help us to respect the life force in, in the various forms. Rather than just reacting to it with our preference, with our aversion, if it annoys us. Or our desire to possess it if it pleases us. And that which is aware of that the awareness of uh, wanting to get rid of something I don't like or wanting to 
keep something I like and, you know, for myself. This is sati sampachanya, ability I have to observe the desire. Gamadana, bhavadana, vipavadana. So then there, there is unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. This is what I'm encouraging you to, to recognize. It's this. The anatta is this. Where the, where you, you let go of your identities. You know, you're not destroying them. You're not annihilating personality or ego or anything. You're, you just know it. There's a knowing of the ego. And so you, once you know the ego, you know, the ego has, is all right. You know, nothing, that some, of, some of our personal qualities, personal tendencies, habits are beautiful and lovely and good and admirable. Some are foolish or ugly or silly or whatever, but these are qualities of conditioned phenomena. So the qualities we we in uh, in terms of living within the human limitation the human body is to do good and refrain from doing bad with action and speech that's the agreement on behavior how we relate to the society we're in is to do the good and refrain from doing the bad to be not to to be honest nor other than to tell lies to keep the laws of the land rather than break them, to uh, not intentionally harm others or, or insult or abuse others. Even though in our minds we can feel, you know, angry or abusive or resentful towards others, we, you know, then we see it in terms of Dhamma, but we don't act on it. So we're not trying to make ourselves into into someone who never has a bad thought. Because that's still Sakya Diti, isn't it? I, I love everybody equally. is just another delusion of self. Because the conditions change. Some, in the conditions for liking are present, then you like somebody. When the, when the conditions for disliking them arise, then there's this feeling of dislike. And there's awareness of change. And so this itta-bhajyata, this the way, the con- dependent conditioning, dependent origination, how I feel, you know, emotionally feel in the present is dependent on conditions. But this uh, oneness, pure consciousness, sound of silence is like this, and regardless of you know, whether I'm sick or healthy or feeling people are admiring, respecting me or abusing me, there's this. This is uh, recognized and referred to more and more rather than wallowing in, in my own successes or hating myself for failing, for not being good enough. So this... It's in you know the the end of the sound of silence for me is the the thinking the proliferating thought tendencies stop 
I can be in, you know, somebody says something that upsets me, and then I know oh, how dare they talk to me like that, that sound of silence. That'll stop, that cuts off the, the proliferating thought. Then after that, then there's, there's still maybe emotional energy from if somebody's really upset me, said something that really, you know, made me have a strong emotional reaction, the thought ceases, the thinking process ceases, but there's still an emotional energy lingering that, uh, that, you know, you're aware of. You're accepting that, that kind of feeling of being upset. Emotion, you know, say, the emotion of being upset by something is like this. It's like patience with it, allowing it to be what it is. Because otherwise we tend to want to annihilate it or suppress. Suppressing emotions is, is that's what we're doing. We're trying to annihilate them. Don't want to feel anything. I'm so full of altruism and good ideas about being pure and not carrying resentments that when, when I feel resentful, I just deny it, suppress it. And so then we we're caught in this dualism again. We're, we're always trying to control our emotions and uh, and then there's always the fear that they'll, we'll lose control. What is a nervous breakdown? But you lose control, to, you lose ability, lose ability to control your feelings. So you start, you know, you crying when in public and screaming or you can't, you can't control anything anymore. You're kind of basket case. Take them to the psychiatric hospital. Inject them with some kind of drug that'll uh, stop them. It's embarrassing to be out of control. But in uh, in with mindfulness, then the, we're we're investigating emotion. Not ter- or not analyzing it in terms of why do I get upset when somebody says this or that, but it's that it's like this. So then I, I, I right now I'm noticing sound of silence, and it's kind of this this gap, this not knowing. It just a kind of stops that tendency, have a tendency to to proliferate with thinking, but there, there is attention, isn't there? And it's consciousness. And so stopping there, resting in that, gives us the ability to, to um, be patient with the lingering emotional energy we're feeling. This is what I was doing, experimenting with, with years ago. I met with the Cilidars and let them tell me, tell me what, how terrible I am. Ajahn Sanasir is the only one here that (laughs) remembers that. Where learning to receive, they they weren't just being, you know, malicious or not, they're just expressing feeling, you know, about 
me personally. Then I I I determined to, to listen and to receive what they were saying, and at the same time be able to observe my own emotional reaction to what I heard. But always with this uh, sound of silence as my refuge, so that you know I wasn't going to. It wasn't, I wasn't there to set them straight or scold them or defend myself or accuse them of anything. But it just this willingness to hear uh, how, how they felt about me on a personal level because uh, my relationships with the Thielandars at that time was not very good. So... This was an experiment, learning how to receive uh, what I most don't, what I most dread, being criticized on a personal level. My ego, and that. I, I really dread on a personal level, dread being criticized. I don't want to hear it. So it, uh, you know, it's. Um, that's my, that's the Sakya Ditti. Because in, when I'm criticized as a person, then my emotional tendencies is to see myself as, as a failure. I go into kind of an emotional uh, black hole. I'm not, uh, I don't tend so much to blame the, the person. It's, it's just, you know, see myself as a hopeless failure. So by any criticism, it means that I've failed. You know, if I haven't been able to live up to and perform the duty, the heroic duty, I'm quite a heroic figure by nature. I want to help people and, and uh, do good things. So there's a, there's a heroic tendency, but also there's a fear of failure and a, and a tendency to indulge in self-pity or, or justifying, uh, you know, the sense of, I, I can't do it, I'm, uh, because when I became a, a teacher, I didn't feel prepared for being a teacher, you know, for being head monk at Nanachat at the time, I only had eight, eight vasas, and I was, I didn't feel I was a teacher or ready for that. And so there was always this sense of, I, I'm not ready for that. I can't do that. But because of the uh, insistence of Ajahn Chah and my own altruistic tendencies, I took on the, that position. But th there's also this sense of, if criticized, see, I told you, I couldn't do it, I'm not ready yet, I didn't have enough time to develop. Like I used to think Ajahn Chah had 20 years before he started teaching. I only had eight. And he's a Buddhist by culture. You know, he's born into Buddhist culture. Much more kind of integrated into his psyche than, than mine. And so I could, you know, I could uh, make a case, you know, for my own failure. And in some ways even resent fact that Ajahn Chah kind of pressured me into doing it. Now this, uh, 
the sound of silence then puts me outside those kind of emotional habits. It doesn't deny them or suppress them, it gives me perspective because I can observe that. This feeling of failure, of fear of failure or, or fear of being criticized or blamed. How, aren't we all afraid of, this is one of the most blaming societies here in Britain, isn't it? We're always, who's to blame? And uh, you hear the news on Radio 4, and they're always blaming somebody. And it's terrible to be a politician in this country because you're setting yourself up to be blamed for, for anything that goes wrong, any mistake. You know, you're right, you're the, the, the one that's going to get the blame for it. Well, anybody wants to become Prime Minister of Great Britain, I don't, you know, they must be cracked to begin with. <laughs> or the United States of America, I think they're going to have an election next year. Anyone who wants to become President of the United States, I wouldn't trust. <laughs> And then in this sound of silence, then I could receive criticism, things I don't like to hear. I, I don't want people to tell me. It's like, like the emperor's new clothes, isn't it? Tell me I, my new robe is beautiful, <laughs> even though I'm not wearing anything. <laughs> I want the illusion, you know, Tell me the lies that make me feel safe. Tell me you love me all the time. And don't tell me you hate me. So that this is, you know, even if you hate me, tell me you love me because it makes me feel secure. Smile at me uh, so that it makes me feel all right. If you smile at me, then I know everything's all right. If you don't smile, then I, then I think I start doubting feeling insecure again. So the, the endless demands of, of a neurotic personality, isn't it? Make me feel safe and secure and loved and respected. And, uh, you know, don't uh, say things that upset me. Don't act in ways that frustrate me. So this is, you know, the control freak problem, the the neurotic personality, these are, you know, what people, what we live with all the time, you know, with each other and in, in the society. Now, in developing this sound of silence, I wanted a way that I could, you know, not be caught in just these uh, inadequate, immature reactions I had to criticism or blame. Now, how, how am I going to do that? Just stiff up her lip and grin and bear it and just sit there gritting my teeth and, and uh, uh, you know, and just controlling my emotions. So with the Thelodards, I didn't just sit there and grit my teeth and control my emotions when they said things that emotionally upset me. Uh, because I could, with the sound of silence, I could listen, I could hear I could be fully with what they were saying and fully with my own emotional reactions to what they were saying at the same moment. Because you're in this 
state of expansive consciousness which includes both what you're hearing from somebody else and the emotional reaction that you have at the same moment. Where if, uh, if I'm caught in the emotional reactions, then I, I can't do that. I just say, you know, the Siladara says, says something I don't agree with. Then I say, then I say, it's wrong. You've got it all wrong. You misunderstood. And then I have to set them straight. Or I get defensive. Or argumentative. Or aggressive. Because that's how emotions are. They're linear. They have, you can't get perspective on emotions with other emotions. You can just use emotion to overpower somebody else. But in uh, this way, then you're, you have that perspective on, your own, on what you're hearing, what's coming to you from somebody else and the emotional reaction to what your, your own emotional reaction to what you hear. At the same moment, it's like this. You see, so it includes both. And then the determination not to, uh, to listen. You know, my attitude was of listening, not of trying to argue or set them straight or, uh, you know, to try to defend myself. But to observe those tendencies, wanting to, you know, have, when I did have those reactions, wanting to set them straight, tell them they're wrong, or defend myself, or feel, you know, oh, I can't, you know, I should never have uh, come to England, I should have stayed in the forest and practiced till I was an arahant, and I made a mess, you know, I could feel sorry for myself, feeling a failure, because I hadn't been as good as I would like to have been. So, then, but these, these kind of emotional reactions then were, were happening, but they were not grasped. Now, to not grasp my emotional reactions, the only way I've really been successful in doing that is through the sound of silence. And grasping, I mean indulging or suppressing. Because those are the two extremes. So indulging in my emotions or suppressing, like feeling sorry for myself. I can uh, indulge in that. Poor me, poor me. Or, no, I shouldn't, and, and suppress that. It's wrong to feel sorry for yourself. It's immature and stupid, and I sh I'm not going to do it, so I suppress it. But in, in awareness, then, with this sound of silence, I'm aware of that feeling the kind of emotional feeling, mood that I'm in is like this, of feeling hurt or broken-hearted or disappointed or feeling a failure or feeling angry or enraged or feeling righteous, feeling I have to defend myself, feeling I have to set somebody else straight, that they've got it wrong and I've got it right. These, these kind of emotional uh, reactions I can accept in this, in this vast consciousness as well as what I'm getting from outside, an impingement from, from what others are saying or what's happening. Now they realize how 
this is a liberation because if I didn't do this, then I am merely, you know, a kind of conditioned monk trying to be, you know, keep the moral precepts and be kind and compassionate and and uh, being a good guy, really, and and uh, credit to the to Ajahn Shah and the Thai forest tradition and and uh, obedient and loyal, responsible, good person, good monk, get the praise. That one, you know, that's one way of handling the convention is just conforming so well to it and trying to be as nice as you can and non-contentious and not create waves or difficulties, not be a problem. Uh, but it's still sakyaditi, isn't it? And it's not liberating. You feel just burdened by, by it, by monasticism. If you're always just trying to, to use it to support uh, yourself through idealism. So it's, uh, you know, this, this mindfulness then, satisampatanya, allows us to even be aware when we hate monasticism. I've gone through periods where I can't stand it. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's not that, that I just have this kind of bland kind of total acceptance uh, of monast Buddhist monasticism and uh, unquestioning devotion to the condition. Because I'm quite w willing to hate and resent. But the awareness of that is what I, you know, I've, and not to indulge in hatred or resentment, to be aware of it. So then this, through this kind of practice, you, you, you have a, a sense of, now, my relationship to the structure, the convention of Buddhist monasticism is gratitude. I'm not expecting it to be, you know, perfect or agree with everything or just blindly conform to it and, or, you know, just be institutionalized monk. But it is a convention that I've used and I've, and I've developed from using it, you know, as a skillful means. It's a skillful tool if used properly. So listening to, you know, being fed up with Amravati monks and nuns in, in uh, living here in England, uh, being critical of Buddhism in Thailand and on and on like that. I've, rather than just, you know, dismissing, suppressing or indulging in those feelings, then the, being aware of them, the conditions for this aversion, dislike, disgust is like this. And then the sound of silence, I'm resting in that and I can be aware of that lingering when I stop thinking about it, indulging in thought, or just trying to control it and get rid of it, observing these tendencies, these emotional habits, letting them go, and being patient with the, maybe the 
feeling of disillusionment, disappointment is like this. And then it, you know, you can, if you're patient, patient in forbearance, then it, the thing ceases. The condition ceases. And there's a discernment, cessation has been realized. And when cessation has been realized, then there's, then you know that this is the, this is your refuge, is this awareness. Sati sampachanya, sati panya. Puto tamo sankho. Putting it into conventional words again. So in the, this, uh, encouragement to listen to you, create yourself, listen to to yourself, to your ego, to the psychedity. Listen to it from this point of sound of silence. You know, so it's intentional thing. I am an American. I am British citizen. I am a good monk, bad monk, or you know, what I like and what I fear and, and uh, approve of and don't approve of, what I dread, who I like and who I don't like, and on and on, like, and, and, and childishness uh, and childish emotions, being, being aware of wanting my own way and resenting when I don't get what I want, and uh, all these kind of uh, being irritated and frustrated by demands of others and and expect in people's expectations and that you listen to your own ego the sakyaditi and that which listens is not sakyaditi this I had a real powerful insight one time that was, which is this demanding self-important uh, personality is like this. That which is aware of it is not that. So this is, this is the sati sampachanya. This is a transcendent intelligence, consciousness, aware of the aramana or the object, the ego, me and mine, my, uh, my emotional habits, feeling sorry for oneself, or be, you know wanting to throw a tantrum when you don't, can't get what you want, or being uh, in love with somebody else, or being averse to them. It's like this, this awareness aware of that, of those, those kind of uh, conditions that are present. Aware of how I hold the Vinaya and the monastic form. You know, how, you know, the ego involvements in it, the, the fears around it, the, the resentments towards it. It's like this. So that I, I, you know, the, do I want to be this person? Do I, you know, you say, say, do I really want to be reborn as a person that when he doesn't get his own way, uh, you know, sulks? Like, <laughs> do I want to be reborn as somebody that, that, uh, you know, 
that gets upset every time somebody says something they don't like? Do I want to be, you know, uh, be, be reborn as a hermit? Do I want to come back again just so I can live alone and not be, not have all the pressures of community life around me? And, uh, you know, that which is aware of the object, so that the ego, Sakyaditi is an object, it arises and ceases, and Pali it's called a Ramana, mental object, an awareness of the object. So then you, you ask, you, you inquiring, self-inquiry, that which is aware of the self, and then the the thinking process starts. You can't. You, you, there's no name for this. Because if I start naming it, then it goes back into the thinking, the analytical, the judgmental, the structure of thought. But if I just recognize this, and then the then the ego still, you know, can can operate, but it's seen as an object rather than grasped where you become your ego. So then as you pursue this, then you, you, you're more, you, uh, like, uh, as you can see, I have tremendous faith in this practice. Sada, Mika and Panya, they work together, wisdom and faith and in the Indriyas. There's a balance there. Because it does work if you, you know, you can't, you know, if you, if you pursue it, if you're willing to, to really, you know, use it properly and, and be able to, to let consciousness receive even your fears and your greatest fears and, and uh, the things you most, you, the, what they call the dark side or the black side or the, you know, the, the shadow, the ugly side of one's ego, the selfish, vain, silly, nonsensical. So that the, you know, this, because these are conditions that arise. So our relationship to them is not of judgment, but of, Recognition. So, in in being able to sustain this, the self-sustaining awareness, it's not me trying to getting samadhi and trying to sustain it through controlling the environment, but in recognizing this, to where I can, you know, be wherever I am in in peaceful meditation retreats or noisy city environments or whatever. This is, this is not destroyed. This awareness, this sound of silence, this space, this consciousness is the background of everything. Uh, whether it's uh, peaceful, noisy or whatever. And then uh, this is the refuge. 
the only refuge I can find. The, any other refuge is it doesn't. It can't be a refuge because it's too dependent on conditions supporting it. So I, you know, like uh, this image of the lotus that blooms in the midst of the inferno is indestructible. A lotus. This is uh, years ago. I came across this image: the lotus blooming in the midst, uh, midst of the inferno, is indestructible. A lotus, you know, is a delicate flower. Not nothing. Doesn't have much. Uh, you know, it's not made of iron or steel or anything. Very delicate, beautiful. And yet, in the midst of an inferno, an inferno is something terrifying you know, destructive. So that's why that, that very image is what, you know, inspired me. You know, so I could see so many monks and nuns, they, they're so easily destroyed by the inferno. You know, they just get overwhelmed, uh, burnt out. Uh, they have to have, they become precious. They've got to have everything a certain way. They make endless demands and wanting it to control things so that they don't get upset and become politically correct all the time, never say anything that offends and just so sugary, super nice and and then anything, any kind of disruptive person, get rid of them. Any challenge to anything that comes from the inferno, we've, we've got to, you know, we've got to protect our lotus at all costs. And that makes myself too precious. And so I, I you know, I, that's, I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to go off and just protect myself so I can have my practice and feel safe. Take the challenge in the midst of the inferno when everything's going wrong. I want to be able to sustain this awareness in the midst of the inferno. When, when everything is, you know, getting close and burning and hurting is like this. So the only way I've found to do that is through this, through my practice of sound of silence. Because this allows me to accept the whatever conditions that are happening in the present moment. Because I don't want to use Buddhist monasticism to make myself precious. To be somebody that that has to have a very controlled and precious environment to to feel okay in. And sometimes meditation can make us like that. We become precious. Where uh, the indestructible is is through this awareness, because the awareness includes the inferno. The refuge isn't in, in being some delicate little flower in the midst of an inferno, but in the, the wholeness of it. The inferno and the lotus together. So this, is, uh, this awareness then is that gate to the deathless, the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Therefore there is the escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. And then that escape from the, isn't a, 
you're not putting out the inferno for the sake of the lotus, but it includes both because our refuge is in the deathless rather than in the powers of the elements or the conditioned world or in we're not seeking uh, refinement as our refuge. When you, when you want to become increasingly more refined, you become more easily upset because this realm we're living in is, you know, is not going to be refined enough. You know, you can't force, uh, you know, your body to be uh, that of a devada, made out of ether. It's still made of the elements, still has intestines and urine and feces and gets old and smells and gets hungry and thirsty. All these coarse things uh, are part of this, this human reality that we're learning from. Not trying to create ourselves into Devadas, even though we can try to create the illusion of being a Devada. So this is where the, the reflection on the human birth is a, is a, in Buddhist terms, is a very fortunate rebirth. Because the fortune, good fortune, is this ability to reflect, this Buddha mind, you can call it the Buddha nature or Buddha consciousness. It's a, it's, you know, it's a, we can be aware of fear. Where on the animal realm, they, they're motivated by fear. When I'm frightened, I can be aware of that fear. I can feel it in my guts. You know, there's an awareness of fear. And I can react just like an animal. I can just frightened and I run. And that, but, but there's also this p- possibility of reflecting on fear, of putting it into that position of an aramana, of an object, rather than making it the subject. So then there's nothing to fear if you know this. But if you don't know this, then there's a lot to fear on a personal level. <laughs> as a physical human being, there's a lot to fear. As a, you know, as a personality, you know, it's easily to get offended and uh, criticism and people are ungrateful and they disappoint you and life goes on. You can get bitter, cynical, because, uh, you know, just... Uh, isn't, you know, what you're expecting, the result. Or life can be, on the conventional level, very disappointing. But in terms of, of uh, opportunity for enlightenment, for awareness, for seeing things as they are, then this, is, this human birth is, and this is, the, this is what the Buddha was pointing to. You know, this is the the emphasis of, of the Gotama the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, this, this way of using uh, our own suffering and insecurity and fear. A way of, of looking at it, a way of recognizing and learning rather than just trying to control everything. But in terms of 
practice. Uh, you've got the month of March ahead of us. And uh, I mean, the, even when March is finished, this, this is ongoing, you know, so you, it's not a matter of, of meditating during winter's retreat and then after that you stop. It's, it's just, it integrates into, into the flow of living through sitting, standing, walking, lying down, breathing, sound of silence, the emotional reactions we have in the community, the, the praise, the blame, the successes, failures, and so forth that inevitably a part of, of our experience of life. But our refuge then is in the deathless reality rather than in these conditions that are so uh, ephemeral. <laughs> <laughs>